Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Richborg sits in the village of Von Romanet. In total, Von Romanet carries about 200 hectares of vineyards, 8.03 of which are Richborg. For centuries, Von Romanet was simply Von in various spellings and permutations. Its famous vineyard, Romanet, was not appended onto the village's name until more recently in 1866. The word phone was formerly Veona, and a few other permutations as well, and this name traces back to a Gaelic word, either Wadana, which means water, or Vidernos, which means forest. And today, Von Romanet is certainly a forest, a forest of vines. But where does the name Romanet come from? It came to be the name of a vineyard when Caesar drafted Gauls from Veona, now Von, and later gifted them vineyards in return for their army service. One of the gifted vineyards was named after Rome. In more recent history, the area experienced about two centuries of hardships. In 1814 and 1815, there was an Austrian occupation of Von. About 50 years later in 1870, the Franco-Prussian War wreaked some havoc, and then of course Phylloxera struck Burgundy, and then two world wars and a global recession. Now, before 1924, Richborg was two separate vineyards, Le Richborg and Le Verwal El Richborg. Joining the vineyards in 1924 was something that not everyone agreed with. The two climats are different in several ways. Le Richborg has vines planted east-west, so it gets sun all day long and usually ripens before Le Verwal. Le Verwal has vines planted north-south, and the wines from here usually have a slightly different pH. In a cooler year, you might get better fruit from Le Richbourg, but in a warmer year, Le Verwal might be slightly more desirable. The Le Richbourg climat was church-owned by the Cistercian Abbey of Citeaux before the French Revolution. And in 1791, the Abbey sold Le Richbourg to Jean Foucard. He was a banker from Paris, and at the same time, he also bought Clovougeau. Pretty lucky guy. He would have been a good person to know back in 1791. 
a neat thing about the Verwall part of Richebourg is that before the French Revolution, Le Verwall was referred to as Clos de Verwall, and in part it was privately owned, though in the 1800s the neighboring vineyard became appended onto the name, and the area became known as La Verwall Sous Richebourg. Despite their differences, in 1924, the vineyards were joined together under the name Richebourg, bringing the Richebourg vineyard to a total of 8.03 hectares. And today, if producers have parcels in both climats, they will usually bottle them together. Soon after the climats were joined under the name Richebourg, in 1936, Richebourg was named a Grand Cru AOC. It was one of the first AOCs. Today, the Richebourg vineyard is flanked on two sides by La Romanée, La Romanée Conti, and La Romanée Saint-Vivant, with Premier Cru vineyards on the other sides. After about two centuries of troubling times due to occupations, three wars, phylloxera, global recession, and a period of getting the AOC system organized, in the mid-1900s, this vineyard, the Richebourg Vineyard, experienced a sort of renaissance with the wines of Henri Jair, who leased the Mayo Camusé plots for over four decades. Wines from this area often produce deep, rich, intense, and almost smoky wines. Keep listening to hear more from one producer who works with about 0.35 hectares of Richborg. I talk to winemakers all the time. And something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM Corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM Corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T to learn more. That's D-I-A-M dash closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. Jean-Nicolas Mayo of Mayo Camusé in Vaughan Romanet and also Nicola J. in Oregon. Hello, sir. How are you? Great. Thanks. Very nice to see you. Wow. It's great to be in New York. So you arrived in Burgundy in the late 80s. Yes. I was very young uh, at the time and at a moment where the domain needed family uh, renewal because my father was actually not a vintner. And we had uh, some tenants working for us and 
Uh, one of them was uh, already very famous, Henri Jaillet, but Henri was retiring in late 88, and we needed to decide what was going to be the following. And uh, I remember my father talked to me as early as 84 about that. But he asked me, although the, uh, the job was years away, he asked me to uh, take the decision very quickly in one week. And he said, well, you know, uh, uh, I think we have a question with the domain and uh, I've thought it over. I cannot do it myself. Your sisters are doing something else. It's only uh, up to you. But you do what you want. But, uh, you know, if you say that you don't want to do it, I will probably end up selling it. So uh, there, there was some pressure. Well, that probably would have been a bad time to sell, like historically. <laughs> historically, it would have been a bad time to sell, certainly. And uh, probably it would have gone on for a few years. We hit... Uh, a high in the late 80s, but uh, nothing compared to what it's worth today. So when you arrived there, what was the situation? The situation was the situation of uh, Etienne Camusset and the 20th century. Etienne Camusset was um, the vintner of uh, Von Romani, but he had the political activities. He was member of parliament for Côte d'Or for 30 years. So he basically, um, at some point, uh, led the domain to tenants with whom he shared the crop. And when he passed on his domain to his daughter, this carried on. And when the domain passed to my father in 1959, my father had already begun a career in Paris. So that carried on also. That was a very good arrangement for the time. But things were changing um, and uh, it was not exactly the same. My father had begun in the 80s to sell under our own name and to sell bottles in, instead of selling bulk wine to uh, Négociant. And that required more work. And um, it was a change of times. You know, virtually all people and all families in our uh, situation have either sold or have done the job on themselves. So it was really necessary to take that decision at, uh, at some point. So we had uh, the domain organized with tenants. One of them was Henri. The other were uh, the Forois family, the Tardy family. Uh, each had the uh, about uh, three uh, hectares of vineyards to care for. They were vinifying at the domain, so we had a facility, we had a cuvry, we had a cellar, but not a cellar which was arranged to keep two vintages. We didn't have any uh, tractor, no team, uh, nothing. So when I arrived, I started with uh, a few hectares, four or five hectares. We let all the contracts go until the, everybody retired. I started with four or five hectares, and we had to build a whole operation at the time because and, and build additional uh, extensions uh, for uh, facilities. So it, it was heavy investment for at least 10 years. And it was very interesting in that uh, many things to do at that time. And also a moment when uh, things were changing in Burgundy. When did that become apparent to you? When did you realize something was changing in Burgundy? I realized it quite early on because I uh, had some predecessors. The Lafon, Griveaux, Romier were already at the helm. And there were um, already uh, some questions, some different styles, experiments, I would say, that were going on. And you could see the old world, I would say, that was still dominant, but you had really a vanguard that was already very active at that point. And I saw it quite quickly. 
Also, it was a time when the U.S. discovered Burgundy in the 80s, and uh, one of my first trips abroad was in the U.S. So that was really a leading, uh, a leading force then. And being in the U.S., going to California also, uh, tasting uh, other Pinots, also uh, made me realize that we had really turned a corner and that we could really do a, a great job in Burgundy, but that we needed to be really uh, on top of it. Was it the case that you had wine from your own vineyards at the house when you were growing up? I mean, did you grow up on these wines? I know most of it was sold in bulk, but was there an occasional Clos or? Yes, but I was living in Paris at the time. And my father was very wary not to uh, give us too much wine. So there was the occasional Clos as you put it, on uh, Sunday lunch. Not on an everyday basis. But I was, yes, I was educated with Red Burgundy, of course. So in that week period where you had to make the decision, you know, it seems like a, yes. a short period of time to decide your life. Yes. You know, I've had trouble with that for, you know, 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> what did you rely on to make your decision? At the time, Burgundy was not was already Burgundy. It's it was uh, as you know, it relies on uh, on many years and decades and centuries of uh, history. Uh, it was not as glamorous as it is today to be in the wine business, but still, what made the decision is that this. I, I said this is. I had been, you know, as a kid, very much in vacation in in Vaudormane. My grandparents lived there, so I I knew the village. So I had roots, and I also realized this was a unique domain. This was absolutely unique to have Clovougeau, Richebourg, Carton, etc. And that I simply could not let that go. It's as simple as that. So it's not uh, my passion for wine or my will to live uh, in the country or uh, to... Uh, uh, that came after. <laughs> but uh, no, no, it's really the realization that... Uh, it was absolutely unique. And, you know, I would probably have regrets all my life if I uh, let that happen. So I guess then we, that leads us into a discussion of what the vineyards are that the domain holds. So we'll start with the most prestigious, which is the Clos St. Philibert, the white wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, um, uh, that's funny because it's a family holding we've uh, had for a long time. It's in the haute Court and the name suggests Clos Saint-Philibert. We didn't make that up. It's really the name of the plot. So it suggests there has been uh, vineyards at times. But my grandfather, my father wanted to plan that, but they were waiting for somebody uh, who do the job on a permanent basis to do that. So at the same time, my father was enticing me to come to the domain. He also laid the grounds, paved the grounds for the uh, recognition and plantation of, uh, of that vineyard, which was planted in 90. Uh, so it's above Flagey-Chezeau, uh, still in Flagey-Chezeau, still 200 meters uh, away from Echezeau, so that's quite remarkable. But the elevation is really different. We are at 380 meters compared to 260 in um, at village level so that makes really a difference in terms of coolness and also the soil is very stony for these reasons we preferred to plant chardonnay over pinot uh, at the time you know we, we didn't think and nobody talked about climate change so it, today it might be different but uh, with the results i think that we were right 
do some Chardonnay because Pinot would have would be a little bit austere, would be a little bit difficult to ripen, and uh, I don't think we would have a really good wine year in year out with Pinot. It would still be difficult. So I think that with Chardonnay, you know, you you can do a Chardonnay that will be very mineral. So it's a little bit easier to wait for ripeness. And I think it was a very good, uh, smart decision to do that. When does the ripeness happen? I mean, when do you typically pick that parcel amongst the other parcels? Well, it's generally picked last because I want to have uh, acidity and um, and minerality are given in that uh, parcel. Uh, so we need to have ripeness. And I want to have really a good ripeness with this wine. Sometimes uh, we have a... Some contrast between the nose, which is very ripe, and people are a little bit taken aback by the uh, by the mouth, which is upright, a bit leaner than the the nose would suggest. But this comes together after a few years. I think it's really important to pick ripe. So it's generally the last parcel that we um, harvest. So that would be eight to ten days after the beginning of the reds. There are some exceptions. 2006, we had to stop the reds to do the white. And in 15, we even did it before the reds. That was really uh, the first time we did that, but Chardonnay was really ahead. And uh, we thought that we needed to go there, absolutely. So that was the first white wine that was planted for the domain? Yes. When you decided what the protocol would be in the winery for handling those grapes, in a way, that's like going to a whole new spectrum, right? Oh, absolutely. I did all the mistakes at first. And the first one is to consider that white wine should be handled as red wine. It's, it's not the case. And it took me a few years to, uh, to realize that. So, uh, yes, white wine is, is, is different. It's uh, more tolerant in some ways than red. You know, it took me, let's say, it took me three, four years at the very least to realize that my intentions were good, but uh, maybe counterproductive. What was difficult with that wine is uh, was to um, understand the site. And I had to learn the site and the grape at the same time. So that I made a few mistakes, uh, certainly. Uh, but now I think it's, I got it better. It's a wine, uh, it's not your usual white wine from, from Burgundy. It's a wine that has a um, combination of uh, Chablis and Meursault, or possibly Chablis and Macon, unexpected, uh, perhaps, uh, cross between the two. It's done in the Côte d'Or way, so I, I guess it's uh, closer to a Côte d'Or wine than to Chablis. But you have this leanness and natural min- minerality that you find in, in Chablis, and acidity too. And uh, you have a certain generosity because it's done really very traditionally, the Burgundian way that is fermented in uh, barrels, a little bit of stirring of the leaves, but not that many. And the protocol for uh, fermentation is very, very standard and similar to elsewhere in the the Côte d'Or. Does it go into steel before you bottle it? Yes, because we chose not to filter. So it goes to steel for three, four months. The process is quite long. I want to retain whatever substance uh, and life there is in in the wine. I think that it's an important part of uh, the process in general, and it's particularly indicated for that wine because, you know, uh, whatever generosity that we have must stay there. But it does lengthen uh, the process by quite a bit. 
And how do you approach the pressing of that wine? The grapes are slightly crushed before going to the press to free the juice. I now um, retort to, to a method which is um, um, not becoming standard, but uh, which is uh, spreading. Uh, we protect the juice as much as possible uh, the, for the free run and the early stages of the press. And uh, then later on, I let it oxidize to uh, precipitate what is supposed to be uh, the bad leaves. So then after we uh, blend the two, we uh, control the temperature, we use a little bit of sulfur, not too much, but uh, a, a dose, a proper dose of sulfur, and then it goes into barrel and ferments into barrel. And where did you get the vine material for that parcel? It's a clonal selection. I've really uh, wanted to have as much diversity as possible. So clonal selection for Chardonnay uh, has been more advanced than for Pinot, or was more advanced for, than for Pinot at, uh, at the time. So we get some fine clones. Um, at least we have something like seven or eight different clones. I have a little bit of Pinot Gris also in that wine um, as the clonal diversity, because Pinot Gris was kind of you know, traditional in the haute côte. Uh, and I wanted to, to have um, a small part of that uh, tradition. I also thought that it could bring a little bit more fatness to the wine, and it does so, and Pinot Gris is uh, a little higher in alcohol, so it really helps with the, um, the general balance of the wine. We don't have much. Um, it's barely 10%, but it helps uh, rising a little bit the, the sugars, where you generally end up at around 12.5 natural alcohol in that wine, 12.5 minus in the cold years, 12.5 plus in the warm years, and the Pinot Gris helps uh, raise the alcohol by 0.2%, something like that. It's a little lift that I think is is helpful with, with the wine. Do you ferment those two grapes together, or do you...? Generally, yes. Generally, yes. We don't have enough to ferment uh, separately. So recently you started making white wine from the hill of Corton. And how did the experience making the Philibert influence your decision making and making a, a new white wine? Uh, I, I've learned. I've learned to handle uh, Chardonnay and not to make the mistakes, uh, the easy mistakes you can do. Uh, for example, selecting, uh, I mean, selection and uh, is arguably a good idea. It's absolutely necessary with uh, Pinot and with red wine. Not necessarily so much with uh, with white wine. It's. Uh, I don't mean to say that we uh, Chardonnay needs to be overcropped, but it's it's not something that you absolutely should do. So the the handling of the grapes is. I certainly learned from that. And after I think we have. Uh, a general handling of uh, vinification and the press and so on, which has been useful and is now classical, standard enough that it can bring the specificities of each site um, together. So um, it, I don't think there are that many differences. Uh, with uh, Corton or Charlemagne, of course, we are a little bit more attentive um, but we've been blessed with very um, nice and consistent uh, harvests these uh, past few years, so it's, uh, it's been going on well. 
how did you see the expression? Because, you know, the domain had made Cortone red for some time in some good parcels mm. and some good wines. But here you're, you're making white from the hill. And so, you know, now that you're looking through the same terroir, obviously it's a it's different exposures. But now that you're looking through what is generally the same terroir through different lenses, what was that like? Yes, we, we've started making um, Corton Charlemagne in 2011. So I have uh, now uh, five vintages experience. And uh, in the last three vintages, it was the same plot. But in the first two vintages, 11 and 12, it wasn't. It w- we were dealing with plots on the Ladois side. There is a strip of, of vineyards right under uh, the wood, so high elevation, which is uh, Corton Charlemagne, and eastern exposure, like the Reds. So that would be the part that would be the, the closest to the Reds. And this part, yes, is, it seems to me, richer than the, either the heart of Corton Charlemagne facing south and west and the, the side of Pernon, which is west and northwest, which is definitely more steer. But the southern um, part on Alos and between Alos and Pernon is also not necessarily the most, uh, the most generous. I, I think that uh, the ones in, uh, uh, above Ladois and Alos above the, the Reds makes, possibly make the, the the most serious wine, whereas the others, uh, they make a lighter, more mineral, more upright kind of uh, wine and classical Corton Charlemagne. And what have you found making those reds over the years? I mean, that's an unusual site for you. I mean, obviously, it divides the Cote de Bonne and the Cote de Nuit, mm. but mostly you're a Cote de Nuit producer historically. So when you were working with a grand crew of the Cote de Bonne, what was that like for you? I used to refer to... Uh, the Corton in the cellar as the uh, ugly duckling, uh, the ugly little duckling. And uh, I remember that uh, because we've always had uh, the Corton Cloronnier, that's always been in our family, a vineyard planted in 28, 27 and 28. And I remember that uh, Henri was saying, well, with the Corton, it's difficult. You never know how to place it in the tasting. You know, there is a kind of natural progression the Nuit, the Vaughan, the Premier Cru, the Grand Cru. Ton was always difficult to place because it was, it was a world of, uh, in itself. So we've been very lucky to have a very uh, nice and uh, full of potential, very big vineyard in terms of the wines it can turn uh, with the Cloronnier. And this is a wine that uh, my father bottled uh, regularly for the family uh, inventory uh, and so I have a number of cartons from the 60s and the 70s and the cellar and this is a powerful wine powerful and seductive I've had uh, you know a, a number of people who not necessarily knowing uh, wine much who so not prejudiced against carton I guess who took a liking immediately to that wine so it's a strange combination of power, concentration, a touch of severity, but also a wine which is very attractive and very sweet uh, in, in all meanings of, uh, of the word. So I, I had this experience uh, behind me in, in the family. I, uh, I, I tasted a few of these wines and I knew the potential of uh, the Corton, uh, what Corton could do, and that's um, probably why 
you know, I've been uh, attracted to Corton and jumped on the occasion of acquiring uh, another Corton in 2009 and was willing to really uh, go into the uh, the trade of white wine and do a white wine out of Corton also. It's certainly the, the reason for my uh, attraction to the to the hill. You just wanted to make the tasting order in the cellar more clear. You're like, yes, okay, so now yes. we're going to do three yes. Cortons. Yes, yes, exactly. It's it's a little easier now, yes. But I would imagine that would be difficult in that tasting order anyway, because for me, you have a tremendous Richebor and you have a tremendous Croparentu, and they're so different. Mm. Like the Richebor is so mm. Baroque mm. in a great way, and mm. the Croparentu is more Rococo and mm. it has a big flourish, but then that little bit of austerity. So I wouldn't know which one to pour first if I were to go down that line. We usually pour the Croparentou first and the Richebourg last because uh, Richebourg has a bit more length. And I like, uh, you know, to finish a tasting with the Richebourg because it lingers in your palate and goes on and on and on and on. Croparentou is like a fireworks. Uh, Richebourg is really a, a lasting experience. So I think it's nice to stop with that wine and uh, enjoy the experience and the length and what it can do to you. So with the Crow Parentu, does that change with age? Like if you taste one that's 10 years old, which I have not done, mm-hmm. does the, some of that austerity go away and it has a longer finish or is it about the same the whole way through? It's a wine which uh, which has a slight, um, slight austerity, but it goes... It, it, um, yeah, it goes with with age. Uh, I mean, it uh, it integrates with age. I had um, a wonderful experience uh, a few months ago of having um, a uh, wine dinner, of having uh, a Clos Vougeau 03 and a Croparentou 01, uh, number five and number six wine in the tasting. And what was quite surprising was, of course, the the, the Clos-Vougeot was very lush uh, from the 03 vintage. But the two wines were not that far apart. And when you consider it, with we have two extreme vintages. 03 is the quintessential warm vintage. 01 is a very cold vintage. Uh, Clos-Vougeot is harvested first. Croparentous are harvested almost last. So very opposite uh, wines, and uh, there was not so much uh, contrast. Of course, O1 was fresher, uh, O3 was lushier, but uh, the two wines were uh, shared a balance, a general balance that was really uh, a different one, but general balance that was really very nice. It was hard to def- to, to define which was preferable uh, among these two wines. Although the audience uh, and the assistants generally preferred the Clos Vougeau 03 because it was a little bit, a little less austere, a little bit easier to understand. But for me, I really recall how close these two wines were in terms of balance. So it comes, it comes with age. So you're suggesting that the sommelier slipped you two of the same wine and then told you they were different. That's really the... <laughs> you think sommeliers can do the, that kind of trick? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but about the Clos Vougeot, I mean, it's an interesting part of Clos Vougeot. Yes, it's, um, we're in, right next to the castle, and um, it's uh, directly linked to the history of uh, the domain because uh, Etienne Camusé was able to buy the upper part of Clos Vougeot in the early 20s. 
Clovoujo had remained a monopoly one century after the revolution, the French Revolution. It was first divided in the 1890s, and 20 hectares plus the castle was bought by um, a negociant who was a figure of his time, and lots of uh, uh, receptions and, uh, and uh, lots of... Uh, Parties going on at the Club Bougeot. but he died in 1912, and then there was uh, the the hairs were not up to the job, and of course there was World War One. So uh, it, it took less than 10 years for the Club Bougeot for this part to be uh, for sale. And Etienne Camusset at the time, of course, he had uh, his interest as a vintner in mind, but also his political interest and um, did not want to buy the whole thing for himself. It would have been very damaging on his political situation. So enticed many vintners in von Romani to buy a piece. And this is why many people of von Romani still own a piece of Clovoujo. Not all of them, the Grévaux, for example, had bought before, but uh, you know, the Montjard, Angèle, now Eugénie, uh, Arnoux, and so on, Munuret, the Gros, of course, uh, it comes from that uh, that uh, date. And uh, since nobody wanted to uh, buy the castle, he bought the castle for himself with the three hectares right beneath the castle uh, for the vineyards, and did not live in the castle. But so these, this piece is really an interesting, quite unique piece in the Clovoujo. The terroirs are quite different in the Clovoujo, even among the, the upper tier, it's quite, quite different. And there, there is very little uh, soil. Soil is very shallow. It's kind of surprising because you don't really realize it when you look at the, at the soil, at the surface of the soil. It's stony, but not extremely stony. But actually, when you dig, uh, you hit the stones quite quickly. And at 80, maximum one meter deep, you hit solid rocks and you cannot go deeper. And the roots have to go you know, between the cracks, and uh, it's actually a very mineral terroir. It doesn't really show as such into the wine because the wine is very ripe. So the ripeness compensates the minerality. Uh, perhaps it's the reverse, but uh, we have, I think, for a Grand Cru, uh, a wine which is quite pretty and uh, perhaps less uh, massive than uh, a normal Clovoujo would, uh, would suggest. I've always liked it. I thought it was good. Mm. I, it's always hard for me to really get a read on what Clovoujo is because I think there is some disparity of parcels or so many different techniques involved mm. in, the, in terms of the protocols for the people who make That's it. True. For me, it hits a nice middle ground for what Clovoujo can be. Yes, well, you know, given the character of, of the vineyard, uh, given the, the fact that it's ripe, but the fact that it's also pretty, we vinify it, not in an extremely extractive manner, but this is a, this is a vineyard wine that you can, you know, push a little bit. And yes, uh, we, uh, we know, I know that uh, complexity is a given in that wine. It's not hard to, to reach, but uh, it's... Uh, so we, we can look for a little bit uh, more concentration in that wine. So yes, naturally we would make a very it would make a very nice wine. It's sl extracted slightly more than the average uh, vineyard in uh, in our domain. So uh, yes, I guess we we hit the kind of middle ground. Was that an evolution for you? Yes, 
Yes, we, you know, we, we, I need to understand the character of each vineyard. I don't have a set opinion of what uh, a Nuit Saint-Georges is like. And of course, I, I have the tradition to guide me, or, but I don't expect necessarily Nuit Saint-Georges to taste exactly by the book, or, or same with Clovujo. So I took this, this wine, I was, uh, and I took the prettiness of it. I was perhaps a little bit frustrated at the beginning that it didn't have as much volume as uh, the um, Romanet, Brûlé, or Cropentou. But it's, uh, you really have to rely on the intrinsic qualities of that wine. And it's a wine which is approachable, young, but ages well too. And it's a wine which is really pretty and charming. It's very often these past few vintages, the prettiest uh, wine in the cellar uh, before bottling. You know, it has a really an harmony and a, and a prettiness of uh, aromatics, which is really very enticing. And uh, so build on that and try to uh, to complement the wine with uh, what uh, maybe is not natural in the vineyard or maybe is a little bit lacking. So we pay attention to harvesting uh, uh, ripe uh, to crop at uh, reasonable levels. And uh, we do perhaps one, one or two more punch downs in the end. We leave... Uh, uh, the wine on the skins perhaps a little longer than uh, uh, in other uh, wines, but this is basically fine tuning. This is not fundamentally different. It's fine tuning, but you know it's what's fun of uh, about making wine with uh, different terroirs. You learn to uh, to discover what is uh, necessary and what's best for each vineyard. So I guess that leads into my next question, which is something I've always wondered about, because you had a domain with. A number of different holdings in Vaughan, in Nuit Saint-Georges, you mentioned Corton, Clovisot. What's interesting about it is that for a period of time, for actually a long period of time, it was farmed by three different people and they split up the parcels. And so when you arrived, did you see differences in the farming techniques based on the parcel? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, things were very different. Vinification was different. The styles were different. And it rapidly came um, as, a, as a problem for us selling under everything under the same Meo Camusel label, you know, with uh, the difference in vinification between Henri and the Fourois family and Tardy. It was uh, not that, uh, it was not that consistent. So, of course, after the élevage made it a little bit more consistent, but uh, one of my first jobs was to uh, really... Uh, Try to to bring some unity in, into this, which was difficult because everybody had um, winemaking techniques that were uh, different, and um, everybody wanted to keep uh, their own uh, identity. So it, it, it was progressive; it was slow and progressive. But that was that was um, yes, some kind of a problem at, uh, at the beginning. So when you looked at the vineyard parcels, and you know, Jaillet had Mougère, Croparentu, and Von Brule. When you looked at those parcels, was the hedging at a certain level? Was the picking dates tended to be at a certain time? They were slightly different things, yes. It was perhaps less so than today. Then winemaking techniques would vary perhaps a little bit more between Vintner to Vintner today than they did then. But Henri, for example, had its ways. Um, pruning was 
uh, a bit more conservative, I would say, and also uh, fertilization was more conservative also, and that was the big uh, difference with the others. Um, Henri believed uh, more in um, natural fertilizers and in um, reasonable amounts, whereas the others uh, had um, used, uh, as was the... Um, the fad at the time uh, has used more potassium, uh, which was uh, the kind of miracle fertilizer of the 60s, brought more crop and riper crop, but that proved in the long term not to be really wise. Uh, nobody knew it at the time, but um, so that was that was the main difference, I would say. And did he tell you um, certain things that were important to him? You know, never having had the chance to meet him, I'm always curious. Of course, his his teachings were were extremely um, extremely important. But uh, what was more important was the uh, really the general philosophy of uh, the wine. He uh, he liked very central wine. Uh, he also um, on the viticulture side uh, of it, he was. Uh, quality oriented so i guess that when uh, uh, you know a, a number of young vintners at the time who came and talked with him uh, he told them well you must have quality in mind with your vineyards that is you must be reasonable in your vineyard you must harvest when it's time and not because it's convenient and so he he had very basic uh, advices uh, uh, on, on on that in terms of winemaking, he had his uh, techniques, his canvas, and the, the first year in 89, uh, we uh, did as instructed. But uh, I really, you know, I really fell in love immediately with the style of his wines. I, I had no need, I felt no urgency to, to look elsewhere. This, it, this was exactly what I wanted and what I liked. Henri was, was really... Uh, Somebody who was very, um, um, uh, very sensitive to uh, uh, the pleasure in the mouth, the brightness of the fruit, the texture, and he loved to eat. He loved uh, good eating, good restaurants. Uh, he had a kind of informal club with other uh, uh, vintners in uh, in France, and they 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 went and delivered their wines to uh, the big restaurants of France uh, you know the menot uh, blanc Troigo, uh, and so on so he really loved that aspect of uh, his job and i think it tells uh, something about the style of his wine the fact that he he thought that it uh, it should be very nice elegant a real pleasure to drink go well with food and um, i i i asked no question on that i said yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. You know, one of the vintages that I have some experience from him, where it seems like he did quite well, given the reputation of the vintage in general, is 92. And uh, he made a Von Village that year. That was a very good wine. Mm. And uh, I was just curious, you know, uh, you would have recently arrived, so I was just curious if you happen to remember that vintage as well. And uh, It was a vintage which was a little um, deceiving because... It was a vintage that was very ripe, didn't have a lot of acidity, and therefore it was quite light. And this was a change to me. Um, generally, 92 is a vintage which is a large vintage in Burgundy, so it shouldn't be a surprise of uh, the vintage being a bit light. 
But at the domain, we, I don't really know why we had made some efforts uh, to control the yields, certainly, but I think we had a smaller crop than anyone uh, just from the start. So we had, uh, I had really no real reason to have uh, an, uh, wines which would be light, but this was the style of the vintage. So it was a little bit disturbing for me because I, um, we had uh, done... Uh, 89, 90, easy, big, ripe, concentrated vintages. 91, I was very pleased with 91. Uh, the vintage was not so well received at the time, but the conditions were not uh, uh, as easy. It's a cold vintage, but I really believed in 91, and I was not at all disappointed. But 92, you know, the conditions were nice, uh, the, everything was right, and we end up with, uh, with the light vintage. So that was, yes, that was a little disturbing. Um, that was a little disturbing at the time. A few wines, uh, and most notably uh, Henri, uh, Henri's plots, the Brûlé, the Merger, the Cropartou, of course, had uh, more acidity and therefore are more vigorous and to this day have held up very well. The others were pretty wines, um, which uh, can be a little bit deceiving because I think that um, having this, for me, disappointing harvest I, in mind, I, I've underestimated this vintage. And I've uh, told the, the, the customers to drink it early on and arguably it was better at the beginning between 2000 and 2005 it was better than in between 95 and 2000 notably better so uh, that kind of light ripe vintage is deceiving because you think they are not lasting and uh, in fact they do they do last and they do benefit from uh, a few more years of aging now, of course, what is left is a curiosity. Uh, we still have, uh, as I said, good Nuit Merger, good Von Brûlé. Most of the 92s should be drunk uh, or are already drunk, which is a good thing. So it's interesting, your domain, because you have some key premier crews in Nuit St. George and you have some key premier crews in Vaughan. And if you were to sort of sum up the differences between those two communes, I think you'd be in a really interesting place to do it. A lot of experience with both. So what would you say are the differences between the two commons, if you were to look at it more in a large picture view? Well, Vaughan has an unmatchable elegance, natural elegance to it. It's difficult to say otherwise. You know, it's, it's really uh, uh, wines that are uh, above the crowd. Um, they combine elegance with a certain seriousness. They have everything that a wine amateur can look for in a burgundy. Having said that, it's uh, I love my Nuit Saint-Georges uh, also, and Nuit Saint-Georges, I think, is a bit more variable in character. Um, you have very pretty wines. Uh, you have structured wines, uh, and uh, certainly Saint-Georges is an aristocrat uh, and uh, a bit severe sometimes, but... Uh, there is more terroir diversity in Missouri. You can have very pretty wines. You can have severe wines. You can have wines with a lot of amplitude. So it's a bit more difficult to define Missouri. I would say it depends heavily on on the crew. 
even the south side of New Saint-Georges, which is supposed to be, you know, um, the, the, the most austere because we think that Vaughan is more elegant, so the north side should be of New Saint-Georges should be more elegant and more akin to Vaughan. I'm not sure this is totally true. Um, our Budo is yet very elegant. The Nuit is more structured. We make also a small, um, small premier cru in Nuit Argia, which is quite structured very structured, I would say. And we have another uh, premier cru that we've been making since 2003, a Nuit Perrière, uh, which is south of Nuit Saint-Georges, which, on the contrary, is extremely elegant. So I, I, it defines Nuit Saint-Georges as a bit more difficult to explain. And if I were to hone in on the brulee of Vaughan, what should I know about that parcel? Vaughan brulee is um, a plot which is divided between two expositions, uh, northeast and south. Where northeast? That is the exposition which is next to Richbourg. And I've had a very interesting comment from a uh, wine journalist one day because we were doing a Richbourg vertical, something we do, of course, uh, every week or so. <laughs> uh, but uh, so we were having a Richbourg vertical, and as a comparison, there were a few Brulee and Croparantou. And uh, the guy told me, well, you know, you have a Richbourg where you're located. It's a fresh, cool Richbourg. Yes, we're located a little bit higher on the slope in the passage between the two hills. So, yes, it's, 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 it has a touch of, uh, of um, coolness into uh, the wine. And he said, yeah, this Richbourg is... It's, I love it. It's not exactly the classical Richbourg. On the contrary, your brûlée is much more like a classical Richbourg. It's a little bit below, uh, so it's much more like a classical Richbourg. And since brûlée is also a very uh, old vineyard, I think that, um, yes, it's, uh, it certainly is a, a wine which is very close to uh, the expression uh, of a classical Richbourg. It's a wine which is quite big, quite imposing, uh, you know, uh, very, uh, very lush uh, and big. So you think that you're going to have a very powerful wine and it actually ends very spicy, peppery in a, in a light way, in light in the good meaning of the word. It's not heavy at all. So it has a lot of a distinction between, uh, while being very um, mouth-filling and imposing at the beginning, it, it, it finishes very uh, lacy and, and, and very nice. So it's, it's a very interesting wine. Favorite of many customers. The brulee. The brulee. Yeah, I can understand why. Mm. So you've, you've spoken some already about the differences between Richbor and Croparentu, but in terms of farming, how do you approach that? Well, um, Richbourg is really um, a very classical vineyard. There's not much to, uh, to do. We pay attention to yields, but it's not a vineyard in which you have many things to correct. Uh, Croparantou, on the contrary, is a vineyard which makes um, slightly bigger grapes, and um, we have to pay attention to yields. It's not terrible we we don't have to do terrible things you know drop half of the crop and so on so we, we've reached now the the vineyard is almost 60 years 60 years old so we've reached a good balance now 
Um, but we do have to pay attention to when it's harvested. We need to harvest it late and we need to therefore ensure the, the, the conditions to harvest late either. So that is, we, if uh, we need an extra airflow in uh, for the grapes, then we'll pull out a few leaves. And uh, so that's what needs to be done. You know, everything to prepare for a late harvest. Does the exposure differ a little bit with Cropin 2? A little bit, yes. Cropin 2 is a little bit um, looking to the north. That probably leads into a late harvest. Probably. So I think a lot of times people say, like, that's the place that used to be planted with cabbage, and then Henri Jaillet planted yeah. it to vines. But yeah. was it always cabbage, or was it just cabbage during the war period? Or I mean, Yeah, no, it was... It was it was certainly during the war period because Coparantou, you find it everywhere in the old maps. You have it in the 1855 classification of Laval and you have it in the subsequent maps of uh, the turn of the century. So it's just that, you know, after Phylloxera, after also and certainly uh, World War One, world economic crisis, World War Two, it's a difficult vineyard to work. So certainly, you know, only the easiest and the best, the very best, were kept. Copantou was not famous at the time, so it got uh, uh, abandoned, and the slope is quite steep. It's, it's really a difficult vineyard to reach and to work. So it's, I'm not surprised it ended up like that. There, there were reasons for that, for these um, cabbages or... Um, Jerusalem artichokes, I'm told. Also. That's right, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And of course, after uh, World War II, conditions uh, changed again and uh, were uh, more uh, set for a renewal for that, of, uh, of that vineyard. So speaking about conditions changing, you implemented a, a micro-negos program mm-hmm. at, the, at the domain to work with a number of different parcels mm-hmm. that weren't part of the family holdings. And that sounds like... Uh, it would have been an interesting challenge in a period of time when Burgundy holdings are becoming more expensive and more sought after. And so what has led to success on the micro-negos level? Because uh, it seems like it's a challenging environment to source fruit at this time. Well, actually, we started in 1999, and it was a good time to do that because um, um, wine cycles are not exactly the same as economic cycles. And... Uh, Burgundy at the time was not extremely successful. Uh, uh, we had uh, one or two demonstrations in Bonn, you know, of, of vintners being, you know, not very well off, um, which was, you know, quite rare in uh, in in Burgundy. Um, but uh, yes, wines were available then. We chose to begin with. Uh, small appellation and this is still the case today we're very much uh, we very much concentrate on this uh, small appellation Bourgogne Marsanet we have a Fissin and it was a good time to start a, a negotiation business today it's challenging yes because the fruit sources are uh, uh, scarcer and it's much more expensive bulk prices have been multiplied by two in just a few years it's really um, it's really difficult. It's really a seller's market. But back then, it was a buyer's market. What have you learned over time? What's been important to the success? It has brightened my horizons. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, you 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 
you have a kind of, uh, when you live in Vaudromane, even though Gevray is only five kilometers away, uh, you have a kind of theoretical knowledge of Gevray and not a hands-on knowledge of Gevray, why this plot is better than the other, why, you know, is uh, you should be there. And uh, yes, uh, you're thinking that uh, this is a great vineyard, uh, but too bad, it's a bit disappointing. Uh, so you, you, it's really the... the Um, broadening the horizons, getting to know the region much better, and and gaining experience. That's that's what it's all about. And did you make a pasta grand for a period of time? Yes, we at the very beginning we made a pasta grand until '98. I hated the vineyard. I have bad memories of that vineyard because it's a uh, it's a, a vineyard that was located uh, beyond uh, the railway line. And it's a vineyard I worked uh, when I uh, started. So back in 99 and 90, I had to learn the job. And uh, we had uh, we were carrying uh, four, um, four and a half hectares with uh, Christian, my uh, vineyard manager. We were the, only the two of us. So I really had to learn how to prune, to do everything in the vineyard. And this vineyard of Patsutuga was so hard, you know, a 300-meter row. You never s- saw the end of it. And uh, in the winter, it's, it was very flat, very windy, very cold. I really dreaded going there. It was not very good. Uh, I didn't want to go there. And I had some success with the wine. Uh, we had some good, um, some very good vintages, 89, 92 was a very good vintage because the wine had natural acidity that was lacking in the vintage. So it, we, we made some very good vintages at that wine. But we made also some bad ones. And uh, the wine was definitely different than the others, really. It was difficult to master. uh, And I was not on top of it. And uh, I um, ended up deciding that, and you know, it's a different grape. So I prefer to make, to concentrate on 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 a Bourgogne Rouge that would be really, be very much, be very much an introduction to the greater wines of, of the range. Whereas the Pastugrain, you cannot say it's really an introduction. You cannot really understand what the style of uh, the domain is about. Uh, and it's m- much more difficult to relate to Clos and Richebourg and to imagine what uh, what it would be with the Pastugrain than with the, uh, the, the Bourgogne Rouge. So my motivation was low with Pastugrain. And I'm, I'm afraid I'm responsible for... Uh, really not making that wine anymore. Seems like a fair decision to make. (laughs) (laughs) So I think a lot of times when you look at the old books on Burgundy, you know, old by which I mean early 90s books, they say Mayo Camuse, 100% new oak, always destemmed, riper, bigger fruit. What would you say? I say this is is true, um, but uh, there has been some evolution since. Henri did not like stems at all. And uh, he was very frustrated with uh, some of uh, our peers who uh, use stem extensively, and uh, he didn't like the type. Um, nowadays, stems are very much in fashion, and so uh, it was not the case uh, in, in in the nineties. So you know, it's uh, the, the the debate between the two is really as old as red wine uh, in Burgundy. Um, so. I've um, experimented with uh, stems. I've uh, done a um, one vintage, 
a cuvee of uh, a small cuvee with eighty uh, percent stems, really uh, to know how to vinify that and what were the result in a meiochemistry environment. And this is definitely not my preferred uh, style, but I've um, experimented with it. I've done thirty percent. I've done you know the same cuvee thirty percent versus zero. Uh, so we, we I'm, I really, I really can can speak about what it is to uh, how it is to vinify what's what's the, the, the evolution thereafter and so on. Um, now we introduce uh, with uh, great caution a small percentage of stems in some uh, vineyards in some wines, generally no more than ten percent. It's really it really does some. Um, wonders to um, bring a little bit tannins to the wine so sometimes a little too much that's why it's really maximum 10 percent bringing a little bit more uh, uh, volume texture to uh, to the wines because you have more tannins so therefore you have also more, more softer tannins that combine with color stability of color at this uh, level it really is not um, you don't lose color you don't have the same kind of pale wine that you can end up with when you're using uh, 80% stems. It, really, it works the reverse. Uh, it definitely adds some austerity and some, uh, you know, fresh in the sense of mint eucalyptus uh, uh, aromatics. So in terms of uh, complexity, it's, it's a good tool. It's a good tool. But of course, at 5 or 10%, it doesn't really change our style. So it's a tool, and definitely the higher proportion of stems is something I uh, I respect, but it's not what I prefer. And what about cold soak? Do you do some period of time? Yes, cold soak is um, is almost always done. So we want to have the grapes as intact as possible coming to the uh, winery and. Um, we destem, as I said, and then if the natural conditions have not been cool enough, we cool down to uh, approximately 15, 16 degrees uh, Celsius, um, not, uh, not more. For, and generally it's, it's enough for the wines to stay that, at that temperature and for uh, four or five days at least, and uh, go on their own fermentation um, towards the sixth or, or the seventh day um, on their own very, very slowly, progressively. Some years where, uh, which are very cold, um, it has happened that we harvest at, uh, we end up with grapes at uh, around 10. It takes a very long time. Uh, it takes eight to 10 days to, uh, to start, we generally have to warm the grapes, but this is not a temperature I'm looking for. You know, uh, ten is too uh, is too low, and uh, doing a cold soak of uh, ten days versus five days brings absolutely nothing. There's no advantage. The cold soak is uh, it's really the early days that uh, that matter. And how fast do the reds typically take to do mallow? a good six to nine months. What is standard is that uh, it quiets down during winter and it resumes in March, April when the cellar becomes a little bit uh, 
uh, warmer. Because it's a cold cellar, in my experience. Yes, it is a cold cellar. And also we have uh, uh, wines which are um, a number of times quite uh, low in pH. So the mallow is not triggered immediately. And what about the cooperage? We have moved away from 100% new oak everywhere. We still have a, a high proportion of new oak, especially on the Grand Cru. It's, it's still close to 100%, but we've um, decreased with Premier Cru and Village. And also, it's um, outside the proportion, we've also worked on the provenance, the type of grain, and the toasting. That was most of the work that was done, you know, experimenting on, uh, on these factors. Because a higher toast is certainly flattering uh, during élevage, but it's deceiving also because you get a, a lower um, impact on the wine at first and you say, oh, everything is fine. And then you end up after a 12 or 18 months with wines which are heavily toasted and it's not, uh, it's not what you want. So choosing a light toast which is a little bit scary at the beginning because the wood, you feel the wood, you're, you're really chewing the wood. But I found out that uh, the integration after 12 or 18 months is much better and it's much more subtle. Translates into a little bit of vanilla, licorice, cinnamon, caramel kind of uh, aromatics, which are much more subtle than just, you know, coffee or toasty or bacony, which, which is very simple. So, so that was the first step. And then to try to find also the best type of grain for each wine, the best mix. And it's, it's tricky because um, you know, it's, it's not uh, very scientific. It's not an exact operation. Uh, wood and oak is variable. It's not, it's not an industry. It's not exactly replicable. So it's really, uh, it's a tendency, you have general tendencies and uh, you have to be able to replicate and to know what a certain type of grain will end up with, combined with Clovougeot or Richbourg. And you have to find what's the best match and edge your bets too. Uh, that is, uh, you, we know that a certain type of oak can be great is great, you know, um, two-thirds or 75% uh, at the time, but the remaining can be a little too, too heavy. So, uh, you know, uh, you take the risk because you think this is great, but at the same time, you don't want to have all your wine in the same type of barrel. It's, it's, not, um, it's not advisable. What's your approach to racking on the reds? Yes, we, we've uh, usually um, had uh, the habit of racking at least once during the élevage and another racking for the preparation of bottling. Um, we tend to reason that more nowadays and not rack the wines that uh, don't need it. You know, we have wines which have a very nice evolution. And I mentioned Clovougeau, which uh, is often the most pretty wine in the cellar. And uh, Clovougeau for the past two years did not seem to need a racking and didn't do anything to the, to the wine and uh, perhaps quite the contrary. On the other hand, we now have wines, um, we also have wines which are a bit more steer. We have a, some reduction uh, in some wines, and this is a problem which is a bit 
which is pervasive in, in Burgundy and, in my opinion, also very linked to the, um, to the viticulture, although it's difficult to make sense out of it, but it's linked also to organic viticulture, I think. Um, so we have to deal with this, and some uh, cuvées and some vineyards are more prone to uh, reduction or to being a bit tight, and therefore need an intermediate racking during the élevage. Do you find that reduction out of a vineyard is linked to nitrogen or to vegetative growth? Do you see more green matter in the vineyards that are showing more reduction? It's difficult to link it uh, 100% because there are some... Uh, some vineyards which defy the model. But it seems to be more pervasive in vineyards with a high acidity, colder climate vineyards. I, I think it's mostly a, a, an exposition factor. We think it can be linked to um, um, odium, mildew, powdery mildew, as you call it here, and uh, the fact that some sites may be a little bit more sensitive and therefore we use a bit more sulfur. Although, you know, the sulfur factor in the vineyards is not, I mean, it, it's certainly not the, the only one, or if not even um, perhaps the main one. But I seem to find that, yes, uh, the cooler uh, vineyards have uh, more reduction issues. So looking back, what have been the key realizations for you, besides what you already said? Uh, vintages I've enjoyed a lot are uh, 99. Um, it's a good mail you. <laughs> it is. Thanks. Uh, it's, uh, it was perfect. 99 was perfect. We had a big crop, but I was, you know, we, we, we were aware of it and we, uh, we did what, what it took uh, to uh, take away some of uh, the uh, excess of that crop. So it was large um, with us also, but it was not over large. And we had almost three weeks of good weather, not too hot, but good weather before. And it was really ripe and having great balance. We harvested before the rain. And uh, so it's, it, I think it's a vintage in which we, uh, which was really right for us. I love 03 also because um, 03 was kind of uh, panicky. And you like it when you're, uh, you think that uh, you're on top of things like uh, 99, but 03 was totally the reverse. Uh, very upsetting. And by the way, I think this is why a number of my um, of other vintners don't like O3. A number of them really say, oh, I don't like O3. And even at the time when, you know, generally vintners, they want to sell and they say this is the best vintage ever, whatever the vintage. But O3, it was a little bit different. People were certainly uh, put off guard. But it's, it has taught us great lessons, 03, that, um, you know, uh, the vineyards uh, can take care of themselves, that uh, maybe in a given year, the best is to change nothing. Because uh, uh, in 03, that's, in retrospect, that was the best strategy, change nothing in the vinification. And don't imagine that this is a, a vintage that will not end up having, yes, its personality, but being a, a good vintage for what it is. 
so it's it it was a great great lesson o three uh in that uh in that respect and of course i've i've liked uh other vintages also i've uh i've liked ninety six uh ninety six is a quintessential cold vintage meaning by that it's not necessarily bad weather vintage because the weather was actually very fine uh fifteen days of good weather before uh before harvest but wind coming from the north, so a very cool harvest, lots of uh, acidity remaining in the grapes, uh, low temperature ripening, and today a vintage which really has, uh, yes, evolved, but very uh, remains very fresh and lively. So uh, uh, that kind of vintage is really also absolutely typical of Burgundy. You can have ripe vintages elsewhere and you have uh, many ripe vintages uh, uh, elsewhere and ripe in the meaning of uh, ripe and sweet, but ripe and lively and acidic, you can do only in Burgundy. So this is, uh, th th this is uh, a very uh, specific uh, character of our uh, wines and vintages and I love that when, when it happens. So it's difficult to master, but I, I really love it. I feel like when people open wines from that vintage today, that's what they comment on, is the acidity. Yes. Well, it, it's been really something which is um, certainly disturbing because uh, the acidity, uh, in general, these vintages, they are great on the nose because they have really that fresh basket of, of fruit. And, uh, and you find black fruit, uh, you find red fruit, and it's really uh, jumping out of the glass. And the mouth is much more austere more upright and sometimes biting with acidity in the um, in the early years. It is also vintages and types of wines which are more difficult to pair with food because they are very sensitive if the food is too sweet or too rich, too creamy, it, um, makes the acidity even more prominent and the wine tastes totally imbalanced. So, on the contrary, I've had... Um, from Sommelier is also a great comment saying this is uh, wines which are which are very good with the food in the sense that they are lighter. Yes, they're, 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 generally they're lighter than ripe vintages because they have a bit less alcohol, so you can drink a little bit more. Uh, that is for sure. But in general, they're, I feel, a little less easy to, to handle uh, it's not uh, uh, vintages that you can drink as an aperitif. You had you need food with it, and not necessarily uh, um, every kind of food. It goes very well with fish, actually. That would be a good match for that kind of uh, for that kind of vintage. But the the charm and the liveliness of uh, these uh, vintages, especially when they are uh, they have a few years, is unmatchable. Was '04 a challenging year? Yes, 04 was a challenging year. Um, it was a challenging year because it was a large crop. August was difficult, difficult month. And 04 was very ripe, contrary to what is generally thought very ripe. We reached 13, 13.5 without a problem, a bit light, and had um, this uh, green aromatics that we discovered only after bottling. Unfortunately, um, and we uh, we didn't uh, we didn't we didn't think and we didn't find it before. What was uh, supposed and would have been a very charming and easygoing vintage, not extremely serious, but 
nice and easy going rewarding vintage ended up being a, a little green um, and displaying some some severity some greenness in a very unexplicable way has that gone away some in Val? A little bit. It's more combined now. Um, it's more combined, so it uh, uh, mingles with secondary aromas. And um, yes, it's much more acceptable now. On the other hand, 2015 seems like a vintage where everything went right. Yes, it's a great vintage. It's a great vintage. It seems to be a great vintage. The wines are um, finishing malolactic now, so are, uh, they're a little bit at the bottom of their, uh, their form, but... Uh, It's, uh, I've no doubt, it's going to be a great vintage. It's a vintage which has great ripeness. It's high in alcohol, around 13.5, which for Burgundy is high. We managed not to be, um, not to go uh, beyond 14. We have just one or two wines which are, you know, touching 14. But uh, I guess this was the pitfall of the vintage. And it's, um, and, and it's, deceiving these vintages and uh, especially like uh, in the past few years in Burgundy contrary to what many people imagine the uh, alcohol levels were not very high so 2015 is the first vintage since 2009 when we reach and go over uh, 13 and when when we reach 13.5 everywhere um, the vintages between 09 and 15 are more around 12.5. So I say that because in 15, we believed at some point that the grapes were slightly unripe and that we could let them sit in the vineyards for a longer time because it seemed that the sugars were not increasing and that maybe, you know, the conditions of the previous uh, years was uh, repeating itself and uh, that they would not go over uh, 12.5. But in the end, you know, it's that kind of vintage where it's uh, the weather was very calm and perfect and warm and no variation in the weather forecast. Uh, at the end, it turned out to be, um, it turned very quickly. You know, it's, uh, it's almost, I say almost because it's not a large crop, so... But to, to make people understand, it's almost as if it was underripe, underripe, and the next day overripe. Uh, so it was that, uh, that quick. It happened in 2009 also, which was less surprising because the crop of 2009 was, uh, was, uh, was big. But it happened in 2009 where in, you know, in 48 hours you, you, you almost go to a situation where the, the grapes are overripe, slightly overripe. So 15, it was a little bit that, that way. So very Great, nice harvest, less worries, you know, uh, no watching the weather forecast every two hours for the next uh, rainfall. So very relaxing uh, harvest. But at the same time, uh, as always, a vintage which had its uh, pitfalls. So that's one climate. But now you're making wine also on a consulting project that you're involved with heavily in Oregon. And how did that come to be? And, and how has it been so far in the three vintages that you've been there? Well, first of all, it's not a consulting project. It's, I'm really involved in that, uh, in that project because I'm um, the part owner of uh, that uh, project with my uh, friend um, uh, Jay Boberg. And uh, it's, it's now a real, and uh, we have uh, um, some partners, of course, and some investors, but we are the, uh, 
the two ones that drive uh, the whole winery. In what way did you get that project started? We have, with Jay, we have a 30-year-old uh, friendship because I met Jay when I was in school at Penn and his sister was in the same um, program as I did and Jay came to see her at some point and uh, we had, uh, Jill had uh, thrown out a party and Jay was very much into wine already uh, and so when he knew that uh, I was uh, going to be in, uh, in, uh, in the wine business uh, and uh, was... Uh, Having a, a nice estate in Burgundy, he, uh, you know, uh, he, he became uh, very interested, and we have uh, uh, nurtured a friendship since. And so, when Jay was um, has been involved in the wine business, and so when he uh, moved uh, somewhat away of uh, the wine business, he uh, really uh, looked into um, having a kind of a second career with wine. His passion of always. And Oregon seemed a very rational choice. And uh, since uh, his uh, choice had been Oregon and Pinot, he thought uh, of me to uh, help him with, with this. And it's true that at the beginning, it was a consulting project. And uh, we moved away from that aspect of things quite rapidly and decided to start on our own from scratch. You know, recruit some uh, investors, some friends to come with us. And I became very, uh, very involved in in this uh, endeavor, and it's been it's been very personal since. And the three vintages that you've worked there, what have you discovered? Many things. Um, I've discovered the potential um, of, of Oregon. I knew about it, but it you know it's something to know it theoretically or to taste it and then to experience it yourself. So I really think that um, Oregon is, uh, has, has a great potential. Some of this potential is already evident. Of course, it's also yet to come because the vineyards are quite young still. And I'm absolutely convinced that there is a, a big difference of complexity between a young and an old vineyard. And we see it in Oregon also. So the, the potential is there. The, um, one of the main differences, I would say, um, and what is somewhat unsettling for a Burgundian is to vinify uh, wines and grapes with uh, far less acidity than in Burgundy. I guess that an Oregonian coming to Burgundy would find the reverse, is how to vinify grapes with less ripeness than in in Oregon. So this is, this is the main difference between the, the, the two regions. And it has vast implications. Um, the canvas of vinification is the same. But then you really need to adapt uh, what you do in Burgundy because not every recipe in Burgundy is uh, uh, can be applied and uh, or can be applied at the same time. That's that's the timing is is, is really different. But tasting the 14, Nicolas J, the Pinot Noir, I was struck by how much there was a family resemblance between the taste, at least in the fruit profile, maybe less so in the, mm. the structural part. But in the fruit profile, I was struck by how much the family resemblance between the Mayo wines and the Nicolas J. Well, thank you, but it's it's not a surprise <laughs> because um, the the techniques are uh, really uh, similar from the outset, and after we need to, um, of course, uh, adapt. And 
naturally the the conditions are not the same so uh you know i i haven't come to argon to uh to make burgundy and uh, fortunately because it would be impossible but uh yes i think that the principles can work uh, in both regions so uh it's not the country yes it's not the country uh when you compare it to uh, to meo camuset the wines are riper have uh, are more generous um are less uh, Head back, perhaps, and less reserved. But the texture, the the fruitiness, uh, yes, these are things I like and that are enhanced in that in that wine. Also, it seems like the vintages that you've worked in Oregon are also the vintages that have been fairly warm recently. Have you encountered that? Yes, fourteen and fifteen have been very warm. Less so thirteen, in which we did a, a trial cuvee, a cuvee zero, I would say. But fourteen and fifteen have been quite warm. Yes, yes. It's um, it's um, something which is nice because we have a very uh, forthcoming and appealing uh, vintages and wines. It's easy to understand them. Of course, when you want to also make balanced wine, uh, these are vintages which present a set of challenges and you want to do everything you, you can to preserve the fruit, the freshness, the, the, the balance, the prettiness of the wine and not end up having... Uh, Something that will be syrupy, boring, heavy, uh, too sweet, and so on. So, what works for that? Is it a foliage thing? Is it? No, it's um, it's uh, keeping that in mind at harvest. That it means uh, first to not har- to harvest too late. And we were pretty early in fourteen, but even earlier in fifteen. I think Oregon can ripen grapes without a problem. We still, of course, need to find the right balance for each vineyard, but it's, uh, we should not think that Oregon has a problem to ripen, especially compared to California. It's not true. It's, it's uh, Coming from Burgundy, I can assure you that there is absolutely no problem to ripen grapes and Pinot in, in Oregon. So I think ripening not too late is important to keep the freshness and the, and the balance and to keep in mind that this is a, this is Pinot Noir that uh, we do. And Pinot Noir is perhaps not the best grape to make Syrah. Is the water retention of the soils different in Oregon than in Burgundy? Yes, certainly. Um, of course, the soils of uh, both Oregon and Burgundy are very diverse, so it's difficult to generalize. But um, I, I, I've been surprised in Oregon by the, the dry conditions. Most, um, majority of vineyards are not um, uh, irrigated. And uh, 15 has been very dry. Some vineyards have suffered, but not as much as I would have expected under that kind of conditions. So the soils, uh, it seems to me, the soils are quite deep, profound, more profound in Oregon than in Burgundy, but poor. And therefore, you know, the, the depth of the soil is certainly a factor in water retention. Uh, it keeps uh, some humidity uh, deeper on. Whereas in Burgundy, it's more the texture of the soil, which, uh, which plays a, a, a role in the water detention. And what kind of vine material are you working with? In Oregon, it, it's mostly clones. So uh, there are the traditional clones um, available in America for, um, for Pinot, that is Pomard uh, and Vadensville. 
and also the um, what is called the Dijon clones, triple seven six six seven, more recent clones, the one one five, which was uh, developed in the eighties, are the most uh, pervasive clones. It's of course, I would like to to play with more clonal diversity in Oregon. Uh, the uh, quarantine process is is long and cumbersome, and certainly has um, slowed down the uh, the spread of other clones. It is also um, a factor I understand very well when you know when you're planting a new vineyard, so you don't exactly know what to expect, and having and playing with clones which are known. Uh, helps um, kind of alleviate the uncertainty. But I would certainly like to, to have um, other clones introduced to, um, to Oregon. I think it would be good for the diversity. Having said that, Pinot uh, and these clones are no, um, no different. Pinots are prone to um, variate um, and diversify very quickly. So um, it's a matter of time, then um, a triple seven planted at some place will, over a number of years, be notably and evolve notably different than a triple seven, the same triple seven planted uh, 10 or 20 kilometers away. So 20 years from now, what do you see as the, at least the goal for the Nicola J project? I mean, what's that going to look like in terms of releases? I see we currently do Williamette Valley uh, Cuvée, which is a blend of many different aviers in, um, in the Williamette. And this is going to remain the core of our offerings. We will refine that blend, of course, over the years, but uh, our objective is to make relatively widely available uh, great wine from, from Oregon. We are aiming at, in a number of years, making around 60,000 bottles, which we you can liken to a small to middle-sized domain of Burgundy, probably the same in Oregon, perhaps a bit smaller compared to, um, to the average size of domains in, in Burgundy. But for the moment, we remain quite small, around 20,000 bottles. And we will certainly develop also a single vineyard program or a premier cru program. I'm, uh, I, I don't want out of superstition to speak about Grand Cru uh, yet, uh, about uh, Oregon. But uh, of course, being coming from Burgundy, I'm absolutely uh, eager and highly motivated by the, the possibility of discovering some great terroirs and nurturing these great terroirs as well as um, as we do in Burgundy. So this has um, already uh, begun. We've set aside two wines that we think are special, very small quantity because we need to see how they evolve and and uh, we need to still uh, watch them before going a bit more um, in the in that uh, in that direction. But this is certainly our goal to single out two, three, four, perhaps uh, very special uh, wines that we uh, that we like. There's some good terroirs for Gamay up there. Maybe you could. You know, try again on the Passagrand thing. Uh, the motivation is low, unfortunately. <laughs> Jean Nicolas Mayo would like to make great wines more widely available. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Jean Nicolas Mayo is the proprietor of Mayo Camuset in Von Romanet and a partner in Nicolas J in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. 
Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.